Well, welcome back to the Social World Podcast. And I'm delighted to have somebody that I've known for a long, long time, um, a fellow podcaster, in fact, somebody that's been doing it for five years longer than I have. And that's Jonathan Singer, who does the Social Work Podcast based in Chicago, where he's an associate professor at uh, Loyola University. Jonathan, it's a pleasure to have you back again. Uh, Dave, it is it is such an honor and, and, and a pleasure to be back here again with you, uh, an old friend and fellow podcaster who uh, we've both uh, blazed some some trails um, in this in this area. So it's great. Yeah. And uh, your own association honors you about being the first and probably the most influential social uh, podcaster, if you like. Um, with our Pioneer Award, wasn't it? Yeah, it was just uh, a few months ago in the summer of 2023 that I got word that I had been elected to the um, Social Work Pioneer, uh, uh, you know, group. It's kind of like the Social Work Hall of Fame here in the United States. And um, <laughs> it was, uh, man, it was, I was truly, truly uh, humbled and honored to be, um, in a group that includes people that I have so much respect for. Um, this year's inductees include uh, Rick Barth, and uh, he's one of the guys that started the Grand Challenges, and uh, uh, Darla Coffey, who was the longtime head of the Council on Social Work Education. Well, I mean, you're up there with prestigious um, companions, it sounds like. I mean, well done. Congratulations. Thank you. Okay, now, down to the nitty-gritty here. Uh, <laughs> the, 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 your book, right? Suicide in Schools. Yeah. Second edition about to come out. Now, just for those who uh, might not have caught it first time round, do you want to just explain a little bit about its um, its background and uh, content, if you could, you know, in a, just a quick synopsis, if you could? Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, suicide in schools is a, a practitioner's guide, right? So we wrote it for folks who are working in schools or working with schools um, around the concepts of uh, what does suicide prevention look like? Uh, how do you think about assessment? How do you do them? What are interventions that you either need to know about or need to be able to refer to? And then what do you do uh, when a kid dies by suicide? And so that's postvention. And the first edition came out in 2015. Obviously, a lot has changed since then, including uh, telehealth, um, online work, the increasing role of social media, as well as uh, uh, lots of advances and a lot more data in terms of who's suicidal, how we can best approach them. And so we have the second edition that hopefully will be out by the end of 2023. Okay, well, I mean, I think it begs the question. I mean, I was going to ask you this a bit later on, but it just seems a great segue into this. My curiosity about whether there have been um, the, the evolution of support strategies and sort of working with people with suicide, where there's a suicide risk um, over the, the years, the last, say, the last couple of decades. I mean, what sort of highlights have you seen in terms of positive advancement? Oh, yeah. Well, so I first started working, you know, in a mobile crisis unit for children and adolescents uh, in 96. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I would say some of the things that have really changed 
in you know almost 30 years are um, number one we have uh, much better data about who's suicidal so for example in the united states what we know is that children uh, under the age of 11 uh, who are most likely to die by suicide are black youth uh, the most common diagnosis is adhd the most common psychosocial issues have to do with um, um, uh, high conflict family mm -hmm. abuse that kind of thing mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, we also know that uh, upstream prevention like uh, gender and sexuality alliances in schools that when you have schools that have GSAs that there's reduced suicide ideation and attempt for um, uh, LGBTQ plus youth as well as non-LGBTQ youth. Um, so there's really a protective effect. We have programs like Signs of Suicide that are school-based that have been shown to reduce suicide attempts. We have um, outpatient kind of psychosocial interventions like dialectical behavior therapy, attachment-based family therapy. Mm -hmm. um, David Jobes has the uh, collaborative assessment and management of uh, suicide, the CAMS model that has been um, adapted for for youth. Um, we, we also have a much better sense that um, uh, kind of these structural issues like um, income and uh, employment, as well as, uh, you know, in the United States, racism is our defining social problem. We have evidence, uh, we have data that shows that, um, that racism, uh, that experiences of both structural and interpersonal racism um, increase uh, suicide risk for, right. for, for youth. And so we just have a lot more information about, um, what's, what's contributing and, and some things that have been shown to reduce, uh, suicide deaths. Okay. Well, I think, I mean, that's incredibly helpful. And I also think I should have mentioned that you were president of the American Association of Suicidology until very recently. And I presume therefore that you've kept contact with people all across the country. Uh, yeah, I mean, I feel grateful, um, you know, and, and, and you know this, right? Because you're, you're, you're the past president of um, the BASW, correct? Um, you know, there's a, yeah, 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 there's a, um, there's, there's a way in which you, you get to know people in that kind of honorific role. Um, and there's an ascribed authority that, opens doors in terms of participating in, in groups. And so, for example, I'm, uh, I'm on the advisory board of the Jed Foundation, which is, you know, a, a very well-funded group that, that looks at university-based suicide prevention and, and, and okay. mental well-being yeah. Um, yeah. and the Suicide Prevention Resource Center. You know, and, and neither of those op opportunities would have been open to me had I not been president of AAS. So I'm, I'm grateful for that. It does help. I, I do yeah. understand what you're saying. I mean, but that's that's fine because, I mean, you obviously have put the networks to good use. Right. And, um, and, and I think, you know, I think what we've got to say is that the front page of this podcast in the text will make links to Jonathan's book uh, and – I don't know, maybe in the second book too. What, what's the, the time to scale for that one? Uh, well, you know, it's with the publishers. We're waiting to get final proofs back any day now. Mm -hmm. And um, and so my hope is that by the end of 2023 or the latest, the beginning of 2024, the second edition of Suicide in Schools will be available. 
Well, in that case, then, having said that, if, if, if people are interested, and I hope they are, and they get a hold of your first book, that in the first book there'll be the contact details either for the publisher or for whoever, where they can obviously go easily to get the second book. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Absolutely. And there's there's going to be a website, um, suicideinschools.com. It's right. going to have a bunch right. of information. Uh, you can download uh, forms that we've created. There are going to be resources, um, all sorts of good stuff related to the book. So even if you... Um, uh, you know, haven't had a chance to purchase the book, a lot of the um, kind of core information will be available through the website. Are you going to stock it up or are you going to actually actively participate? What do you mean stock it up? Well, um, put lots of information, data, ideas, whatever, onto the site, you know, for sort of educational kind of research and so forth. Or are you actually going to have some kind of interactive thing that you're playing a part on sort of, Day to day or week to week, I don't know. You know, so I'm, I'm you know, just wondering how yeah. you're going to work it. No, so the 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 site is going to be more of a uh, sort of a, a resource right. um, repository. Um, it's possible, although I don't want to promise this. It's possible that there will be, um, uh, you know, a place where people can, um, you know put questions right underneath yeah. some of the resources and be able to yeah. engage yeah. that way. Um, but I don't know that that's going to be something that will end up being, you know, I don't well, know that we'll have enough traffic to the website to, to well, make that. Well, you, make, you can also make links to, um, I don't know if you, you, you do much with the global Institute of social work. I don't. And, um, oh, I, I'm on the international advisory body for it. Our chair is in Singapore, Singapore university social work. Mm. And, um, we look at the institute as a, a essentially a large, as a sort of a library repository, whatever, for social workers around the world to access um, data, information, ideas, um, blogs, podcasts, you know, whatever, and sort of celebrate. It is. It has usually been very sort of more Southeast Asia Pacific Rim based, but. Um, you know, most of the international advisory board are sort of academics and. A lot in America, actually. Mm. Um, in fact, it's quite it's quite funny. The whole general board, you know, if you look it up, everybody's kind of got alphabetic spaghetti after their name, you know, <laughs> the, the whole sort of thing. And then there's Dave Niven, podcaster. <laughs> <laughs> you're the well, you're the only one. That when somebody outside of the outside of academia looks at the list of people, they actually know what what you do and 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 sort of who you are because all of the FAP, LCSW, PhD um, word salad makes no sense. So yeah, well there we go. Anyway, look on with on with the show because I want the things I want to hear from you. Um, I, as we said earlier on, I, I told you I'd listened to an earlier um, interview with you. Um, when you were talking to people about your views on um, um, re reflective supervision versus empathy, if you like, or empathy versus reflective supervision, because you you thought that they were totally different animals, in fact, and you talked much more about the complexity, as you saw it, of empathy and how it kind of fitted in or didn't fit in um, in our daily professional lives, do you want? Do you want? Could you just say a little bit more about that, and then I'll, I'll just 
pop in a little question for you because you know I'm still puzzled about one bit. Yeah, of course. So I think in that interview, I was uh, distinguishing reflective listening specifically mm-hmm. with with mm-hmm. empathy rather than reflective supervision, which is a kind of okay. a, its own thing. But um, what I would say is that, um, y- you know, kind of very mechanistically, you can reflectively listen, right? You can repeat back what somebody says. You can paraphrase. You can, you can even you know, do more complex reflections that, that can approach empathy, but that um, uh, empathy is as much about what's not being said as what's being said. It is, uh, you know, having this experience, uh, providing somebody with the experience that you get them um, without making it about you. Um, with something like reflective supervision, uh, if you have a situation where uh, you've got a social worker who's been out, mm-hmm. um, you know, seeing a family and it's been very intense and uh, you come back and the supervisor um, sends that worker out again mm-hmm. to a similar uh, situation. And again, it's very intense. The, the supervisor different. might have, yeah. you know, the supervisor uh, mm-hmm. might have provided some, you know, reflection on what happened from an administrative standpoint, right? Uh, kind of very concrete, but but kind of misses the the essence of of empathy, which is to say, I recognize that this social worker right now is not at a place emotionally where they can uh, um, kind of rise it to needs the occasion. To happen, doesn't it, Jonathan? I mean, yeah. that really does need to be be much more focused on. Because I mean, I told you the story about a bit that I used to when I was managing social workers. Just make sure that I give an analogy to them that if there was a serious bereavement or a, a divorce or a bust up or a child ill or something like that, and they came in to work and they were out on a case that was equally as fraught and perhaps even mirrored, you know, their own situation. Um, that that was absolute priority for the yeah. management not to do and also to um, begin to kind of come to terms with the, the fact that we said the social workers' tools mainly are between the rears. And right. so effectively that um, that's that's where the, he- the healing's needed and the help's needed. And any good manager has got to be able to do that. Yeah, 100% agree. And... And again, there's some vulnerability to that, right? Because empathy, um, you know, requires trusting the process. It says, "I'm gonna, I'm gonna throw out. This is what seems like what's going on." Um, and you know, both the 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 employee and the employer have to trust that there can be an honest exchange about whether or not that's true. And and I think that I think that can be tough, um, especially when you're really focused on the administrative side of, of of getting a job done. Well, people, I don't know what your thoughts are, but people, I think, sometimes forget that about the complex nature of, of assessments that social workers have to make um, and therefore the need to be as sharp as possible. Um, I mean, a little bit like doctors or surgeons or whoever, you know, that have actually, they've actually got to a, a large extent, not to be too melodramatic, but people's lives in their hands sometimes. Sure. And so, you know, um, I, I, I was just trying to think about that and thinking in the sense of, so what do you think? Should there be extra training 
for example, in areas where assessments are absolutely knife-edged um, and social workers are still expected to do them. I know they share, I know they talk to other people, but ultimately their name goes on reports. Um, you know, it's I find police, for example, interviewing. I saw something that you'd done, that's what made me think of it, to do with motivational interviewing. Is that possible? Mm-hmm. Yep. So, you know, mirror that then onto what I just said in terms of, um, you know, social workers' ability to interview properly to get the right information, causing the least harm, and trying to at the same time gain the trust of the person they're talking to. Well, you know, you bring up motivational interviewing, which I understand Miller and Rolnick have come out with a fourth edition, right, oh, um, recently. Oh, okay. And, um, you know, uh, uh, my colleague Melanie Sage posted something on, on uh, social media with – she had a copy of the fourth edition, which I haven't seen. So my comments aren't about the fourth edition. They're about the third edition. But, you know, one of the things that's been true about motivational interviewing is that, um, you know, it, it is – it's an intentional – conversation style, right? That, that focuses on behavior change and recognizing how and when um, somebody is indicating that they are either willing to or not willing to engage in that change. And, and, and so if you, if you know, that's what you're using these techniques for and, and you have an idea of what the behaviors are at baseline and then, um, what the person you're talking to, what their goal is and where they want them to, to, to end up, then you can use these effectively. And, and the more training you get in that, the, the more effective you'll be, you know, with this idea of uh, extra training mm-hmm. around assessments, I think that the, the same idea is true. The, the social worker has to know what the purpose of the assessment is. What is the goal? What are they going to do with this information? What could happen with the information that they get and if they if they if they don't understand, that's where having more training can come in for the kind of more concrete and practical side of it. Um, but the connecting it with what we were just talking about with empathy um, mm. and and kind of that emotional yeah. side of it yeah. um, is that sometimes with assessments there is uh, the need to um, help. The, help the social worker to know how and when they need to, to manage the emotional content that comes with gathering certain types of information. And that'll differ um, for each social worker based on their own personal history yeah. and the work yeah. that they've done, right? Yeah. So yeah. I think that um, there is a, a lot of value in um, advanced training on assessment skills and, uh, you know, whether it's motivational interviewing or, or something that's much more specific, right, uh, to a certain situation, uh, is being able to not just learn those skills, but also understand how the process of assessment is going to tap into um, whatever is, is, you know, is going on for you, whatever is, is sort of um, happening in your own kind of intra-psychic world. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, yeah, I, I mean, I think I agree with everything you said there, but at the same time, I'd like to add to it. We've just had a major review in this country. It's taken about five years into child sexual abuse. Um, I don't know if you've seen it, uh, um, but one no, of the things, one of the things that is recommended is a kind of a enhancing social workers who are working in safeguarding and child protection, et cetera, 
um, skills, you know, they, they really have to be because I think it's one of these ones, you're not sure if it's knee jerk thing or if it's actual, you know, going to be really helpful because there's been a few child deaths publicly kind of blown up, you know, at, at the hands of the parents where social services had been involved. And you can imagine all the toing and froing in the media. So effectively, uh-huh. the, the, this idea, but and I remember it from training days myself. I, I mean, when I trained, and I, you, you know, you had police in with you as well, because it's now much more multi-agency. But you know, the five stages of police interviewing. I don't know if it's a similar kind of thing in the states, but there must be something similar to do with how they teach the police to interview and get to the truth. Are you aware of that? Joel? Yeah, I don't know about that. Okay, well, I mean, it's it's an actual, it's a way of actually, um, it, it it's 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 not manipulation as much as just literally giving people kind of cul-de-sacs that they can't kind of get out of, mm-hmm. if, you know, without the actual kind of what actually happened and so on. It's very it's very sort of well known and it's all legal, but I mean, it's not waterboarding or something like that, you know. But um, I think at the end of the day... <laughs> I'm glad to hear that. <laughs> yeah, I know. I, I, we don't go for that kind of thing. No, the um, but the idea of actually giving social workers more skill in interviewing people, because so much of these child deaths recently highlighted... I, I did a program with the BBC about one, and they gave me all the police video cam, you know, cameras, the, 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 the ones that they wear, uh, and it was everything from finding the child to interviewing the parents, the parents pretending to be absolutely shocked and out searching for the child, whereas they'd murdered the child during the night. And there was even video evidence of them carrying the child and dumping it in the river. Oh, my God. It was terrible. And then they gave me the video. Then they gave me the videos of them um, arresting the parents. And the, the, the weird thing was then they put me in a room to make this documentary uh, and the, the kickoff was they put a computer in the middle of the room and me meant to talk th- people through these videos that the police were doing. <laughs> and I, I, I thought about it for ages and I thought, well, all right, because the most important thing for me was to illustrate the manipulative qualities that people have and, you know, how a lot of parents can fool the professionals and often do. And that, that more training and more awareness and more understanding, more maturity, more experience, whatever, needs to happen amongst the people who are actually out there interviewing them um, from a social social services point of view. Because to be quite honest, I think sometimes we've got to be honest about it and say that social workers do sometimes get the wool pulled over their eyes. Sure. Well, I think I think evolutionarily, like you know, we 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 have some level of distrust, but at a but but we look for certain things to let us know that we can trust people, mm-hmm. and when those things are present, maybe because the person is intentionally manipulating us with those, um, it's much harder for us to recognize deception, um, mm-hmm. uh, uh, and so I think that that's a challenge. Um, now, what I'm about to say, I, I don't want anybody to misunderstand. Um, you know, just they're, my they're, lawyer. Just my lawyer. They're, <laughs> right. they're, you know, when when it comes to suicide risk assessment, mm-hmm. which is of course a very specific uh, type of assessment, what we have are um, uh, a series of techniques that help us to uncover um, intent. 
you know, whether or not somebody uh, really wants to die, um, as well as uncovering um, uh, how, right, their plan. Um, and uh, Sean Christopher Shea, whom I've had on the podcast before, um, and is a psychiatrist in the United States, has mm-hmm. has really, you know, done some groundbreaking work in techniques for um, gently and respectfully uncovering the truth when it mm-hmm. comes to suicide risk. And, and, and some of the techniques are um, things that can be used in any situation. Like, so for example, um, gentle assumption, right? Where you, where you assume that something has happened. And so you phrase it like, instead of saying like, um, have you thought of other ways to kill yourself? You say, tell me the other ways that you've thought about killing yourself. Right, it's a subtle linguistic shift, but it's gentle assumption. What we found is that is that um, those shifts can improve the accuracy of the information that you're getting. And, and I think that what you're talking about, you know, in this in this segment about improved training around assessment, is that sort of thing, right? Um, how do we train people to ask the kinds of questions that are going to get the kind of data, the kind of information that they need? Avoiding, order- closed, avoiding closed questions, for example, um, by sort of saying, you know, like, you know, you know, why did you kill your husband? Well, no. Do you know what I'm saying? I mean, to, to try and actually let you say, ask questions that gather data. That's the important thing, and then you can make your assessment. Yeah, but, I mean, my my point really, I, I suppose, is that everybody could do with improving their abilities of all sorts. I could, everybody else could, you know. Sure. Yeah. Um, but we've really got to make sure that we give as much as we can to the people who are making that critical frontline assessment. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so look, yeah, we've got about another five minutes if you don't mind. So I want, I need to. I want to talk to you about your podcast. Yeah. Um, now, it's the Social Work Podcast. Uh-huh. You, you managed to get in and get that title. <laughs> First mover <laughs> advantage there. <laughs> yeah, there you are. Yeah. Um, however, um, it's had an enormous amount of um, guests on it and a, a, a high volume of educative quality. Uh, what I mean, look, do you want to say how many programs have you made and what's coming up? You know, give us a, a general walk through it, if you would. Yeah, sure. Well, I will just say that the um, I call the Social Work Podcast my irregularly scheduled podcast because I mm-hmm. uh, I don't publish on a regular schedule. Um, I, for the most part, I interview folks about topics that I um hope will be evergreen, mm-hmm. right? Meaning that somebody can listen to the inner, the, the episode that I did on say motivational interviewing. Mm-hmm. Um, and that it'll be as valuable in 10 years from now as it is today. Um, uh, some of the podcast episodes that I have coming up, um, uh, I've interviewed, uh, uh, Dr. Dave Jobs, who's the developer of cams collaborative assessment management of suicide. Mm-hmm. Um, about the the uh, the new edition of his book and the the revisions and updates, including. I, I'm glad um, you said that. Sorry, just stop you for a second. Could you say what CAMS stand for again? Because in the UK, CAMS stands for um, uh, mental health services, child and adolescent man- mental health services. Yep. It's a yeah, different yeah, yeah, yeah. 
No rating. All right. It is. It it is. And and in the United States, actually, CAMS <laughs> oftentimes <laughs> refers to child and adolescent mental health services also. Oh, so, um, okay. but no, it's um, CAMS yeah. is the collaborative um assessment and management of uh suicide risk. Right. Okay. Um, it's a model that Dave Jobs developed uh, many, many years ago, um, and has a strong evidence base. I've interviewed uh, Jennifer Luna from the University of Texas about how doctoral students can develop their brand and who they are as they're moving into academia. Um, I I interviewed uh, Rabbi um, Danya Ruttenberg about her brilliant book called um, On Repentance and Repair, and she talks through – Really, how the way that we in you know in the United States, and I suspect this is the same in the UK, um, how we kind of approach addressing wrongs uh, and harms that we've caused um, is really ineffective. And she takes advice from uh, Maimonides, um, the uh, 13th century rabbi, and no, says, no. "Look, this is this is a." Uh, uh, kind of a better way of doing it. And, and it really challenges some of these notions that are, I think, really uh, kind of firmly planted in our brains about what it means to um, do right by others after you've done wrong. So I'm, I'm, I'm very excited about that interview. Um, I also interviewed um, uh, Devorah Heitner, who uh, – I think in 2014 published a book called Screenwise, and she's coming out with a new book um, about youth and social media. Uh, that's it's uh, it's excellent. So anyway, lots of really exciting. No, it um, sounds a full packed. You know, I mean, you know, I know you, and I know probably you've got a few, as they say, in the can as well. So I mean, yeah. you know. <laughs> I have like 20 other interviews in the can uh, that I have not gotten out yet. So yes. <laughs> okay. Well, look, I mean. Give us um I'll put it definitely we'll put it on the front page, but just give us a shout out about what the um podcast site is, how people get there and so on. Yeah, so you can go to socialworkpodcast.com um or you can just search social work podcast or social work in your favorite podcast app. Um and of course the first one that will come up should be the social world podcast. But then after that, just keep scrolling down. Um <laughs> And you'll find uh, the Social Work Podcast. Oh, yes. Thank you very much. <laughs> um, but, yes, I mean, I, I mean, it's been a pleasure as usual. I'm sorry it's raced by, and I'm sorry it's been such a long time. I mean, um, there's so much more to talk about, and I really hope that in far fewer years, stroke months or whatever, than, than the last time, we, we can get together again. I would love that, Dave. Thank you so much for having me back on the podcast. It's been a real pleasure talking with you. Okay. Well, I'll just stop the recording now.